Thanksgiving uh, often gets reduced to mere etiquette. You know, thank you is just a nice thing we tell people when we benefit from something they've done, perhaps even if we don't like it. So, you know, we remember these situations where you're unwrapping a gift from grandma and grandpa and you have great expectations for what's inside and it's a pair of black socks. And you're muster up enough or you're told, say thank you. Thank you. And with some level of disappointment, you utter those words. It's a matter of etiquette, a respectful gesture. But then there are those times when you're the recipient of a gift. Uh, Somebody was thoughtful and blesses you uh, with something that touches you to the core of your being. Or perhaps it isn't that they give you anything, uh, but you feel so grateful that they're in your life and committed alongside you. And in those moments, nobody has to tell you to do anything. Thanksgiving is something that wells up from inside. You've benefited in such a rich way that you can't help but utter the words, whether through laughter or through tears, thank you. It's this kind of of heartfelt thanksgiving that comes closer to what we see in Psalm 136. Psalm 136 calls every generation of God's people to give thanks to God. And it's, and it's really a bit stronger than that because God is utterly unique. Giving thanks to God is not like giving thanks to another human. Because no mere human stands as the source of all blessing and the sustainer of everything good. This is why many times you'll find uh, that, uh, especially in the Psalms, you'll find that thanksgiving to God uh, has significant overlap with the vocabulary of worship, praise, and adoration. You will oftentimes find these things just parallel with, with one another. So when Psalm 136 says, give thanks to the Lord... He's essentially calling us to adore the one who is worthy of all thanksgiving. The one who is the source of all things good. He's calling us to praise the one who is ultimately worthy of all our attention all of the time for every little thing in life. So what I want to do is let Psalm 136 call us to give thanks to the Lord. And I want to do that first by asking you to participate with me in the reading of our passage. And so I'm going to read the first part of each verse. And then I want you to follow me by repeating the refrain, For His steadfast love endures forever. So here we go with verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. 
To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. You may have noticed a bit of repetition. This particular refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. It appears 41 times in the Old Testament, and you just read 26 of them. It even gets um, inserted, you noticed, a lot of times mid-sentence, giving the impression that the worship leader can hardly finish his thought before the congregation erupts in celebration over God's love toward them. We'll keep returning to this refrain as we walk through our passage. It's, it's, it's the common thread holding everything together. Each section that we'll cover today will come to us like four beautiful beads on a string, and the string holding them all together is the Lord's steadfast love. And by the end of today's message, my hope is that you will put it on yourself and you'll walk out of here wearing that refrain more closely to your heart. So let's walk through this psalm and and start putting these four beautiful beads on our string. And each bead will represent why God is worthy of of our thanksgiving. So beautiful bead number one, God is worthy of our thanksgiving simply because of who He is. God is worthy of our thanksgiving simply because of who He is. It is who He is 
quite apart from anything he has done. You will notice that verses 1, 2, 3, and then verse 26 at the end, they each begin with the call to give thanks. Uh, They encapsulate the entire psalm. They're like bookends. Uh, And they give us a framework to begin understanding the God of Psalm 136. And for instance, verse 1 tells us that God is good. We should give thanks simply because God is good. Now when we think of God's goodness, we shouldn't think of His goodness in very limited ways uh, like we often do with people. Uh, Somebody might be uh, a good painter uh, or a good doctor or a good physical therapist, uh, while at the same time being morally wretched. Uh, When we say they're good, we mean that in a very limited sense. They're good insofar as the services they render, or they're good only by comparison to other people. But when we speak of God's goodness, There are no such limitations because his goodness extends to his entire being and to all he does. Moreover, being God means that he has no other competitors by whom we can measure his goodness. He defines goodness. It is all that he does and all that he is is worthy of our Approval, And so the psalmist calls us to give thanks to the Lord simply because He is good. Uh, he is also worthy of our worship. Verse 2 says that God is the God of gods. Now that doesn't mean there really are other gods in the universe besides the true God. And, and He just happens uh, to be the one Israel thought was greater than all the others. Uh, we're told elsewhere in Scripture, in, 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 in like one for example is uh, Isaiah 45, verse 5, um, or 1 Corinthians 8, 5. We're, we're told there that the, uh, the Lord is the only God, and besides Him there is no other gods. So what we're getting here is a reference to the perceived gods in relation to human beings. That is, humans create for themselves gods out of all kinds of stuff that are ultimately really not gods at all. They just worship them as gods. So for uh, for God to then reveal himself as the God of gods is a way for him to say that he alone is supremely worthy of our worship. He alone stands in transcendent uniqueness. There is not another that stands in transcendent uniqueness alongside Him. He is supreme over everything that could be worshipped and called a so-called God. So we give thanks because He is worthy of all our worship. And then verse 3 adds that He is also sovereign. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. So he has total dominion and complete control over all who hold power. 
There's not a king or government on earth that moves an inch apart from the lordship of Yahweh. He's even sovereign over the armies of angelic hosts, whether good or evil. Verse 26 says that he is the God of heaven. Ultimately, nobody and nothing functions outside of his lordship. So he is good, he is worthy, he is sovereign, and therefore he deserves all our thanksgiving. Now this vision of God really presses home to us that God is worthy of our thanksgiving even when we don't get what we want, doesn't it? That he shouldn't be thanked only when things are going our way. That he shouldn't be thanked only when we're happy, healthy, wealthy, and safe. God deserves our thanksgiving simply for who he is. He is good, he is worthy, and he is sovereign. But we also shouldn't miss that the refrain has already begun, hasn't it? Even as he calls attention to who God is, he is good, he is worthy, he is sovereign, three times over we hear the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's already a relationship to this God at the heart of this song. This God who is holy, good, this God who is supremely worthy, this God who is sovereign Lord, this God has chose to love us. The worshiper in this psalm can't help but tie God's essential character into the way he has found himself loved. He isn't just rehearsing abstract theological ideas about God. He has personalized every one of them in relation to the steadfast love God has showed him. This God has showed him. And the way God's character informs that steadfast love enduring forever. God's love endures forever because it's rooted in the God who is good forever. There's never a a moment where he's going to turn bad on me. God's love endures forever because it's rooted in the only true God who doesn't have any competitors to His glory. It endures forever because God alone rules and can't be robbed of His dominion by some external authority or force. It's almost like Romans 8, Old Testament style. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because of who God is. He is good. He is worthy. He is sovereign in every circumstance of our lives. And this compels us to give him thanks at all times. The psalm then goes on, uh, but it shifts a bit in the remaining verses. Now he builds his case for thanksgiving on what God has done. As with many places in Scripture, we understand who God is based on what he has done to reveal himself 
And in verses 4 to 9, we see what God has done to reveal Himself in creation. And this is our second beautiful bead going on the string of God's steadfast love. God is worthy of our thanksgiving because He is the Creator. In verses 4 to 9, it's as if the psalmist has tuned in to what the heavens and the skies announce about God. And he invites us to come and listen with him. So for starters, he acknowledges God's power as Creator. His power. Verse 4 says, To him who alone does great wonders. And the great wonders he has in mind are the Lord's uh, creative acts where He calls into being a a universe that once did not exist and and then fashions that universe according to His purposes. And many of these wonders He pulls right from Genesis 1, the first account in our Bibles of God creating the universe. The heavens, the earth above the waters, the sun, moon, and stars, they all reveal something about God's unique power. So, for example, Isaiah 40, verse 26, just in relation to the stars, says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. In other words, we're supposed to be able to go outside at night, look at the stars, And see, those things aren't self-existent. They come into being and go out of being by the command of Yahweh. And it says something about His power. Or Hebrews 11.3 tells us that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Nobody has that kind of power except God to summon with a word what is visible out of what is invisible. So things like a Grand Canyon or a Mount St. Helens or the Pacific Ocean or a pistol star glowing with the energy of 10 million of our suns or the fact that if you were to count every single solitary grain of sand on every beach on earth that even that wouldn't equal up to the number of stars in our galaxies, these kinds of things in creation, they're a window to God's creative power. Uh, Notice that he also hears the heavens declaring God's wisdom. Verse 5, to him who by understanding made the heavens. God didn't look around and get input from outside engineers and outside resources on what the best way to go about creating the universe would be. He just knows. He simply knows. He is the source of all wisdom and understanding and the created order stands as a testimony to that wisdom and understanding. And much of that we see in the order that He gives to the universe. The order. Verse 6 says that He spread out the earth above the waters. And the poetic imagery here is that He did it like a fine craftsman. The earth was like a piece of, of hammered metal 
in, in a blacksmith's hand, and he beat it here and there, and it took shape above the waters. It functions just as he made it to function. And that includes things like the sun to rule over the day and the moon and the stars to rule over the night. In other words, not an hour goes by where he isn't personally involved with his creation and directing the course of every day. When the sun comes up in the morning, the moon comes up at night, it's a reminder to those living on earth, God's ordering everything, every day. So his creation reveals that he's powerful, that he's wise, and that he orders every day that passes. How does the refrain land on you now? For his steadfast love endures forever. Whose steadfast love? The Creator's steadfast love endures forever. Again, these aren't abstract thoughts of a God far away from us. They, they come from a heart gripped by the steadfast love of someone no one less, no, uh, that's, that's no less than the creator of the universe. The creator has loved me, therefore I sing. And if this creator loves you, if he's committed to you, then his power and his wisdom and his ordering of all things in creation is for your benefit and for your good. You won't find a better love than the creator's love. Not a moment passes in the created order in which he is not committed to his people. He is so created and ordered and sustains His creation that in every moment His people can truly say that God's steadfast love endures forever. Never does an hour of the day pass without God's power and wisdom working for the good of His people. God created this world so that everything in creation would be reason for His people to abound in thanksgiving to their Creator for His steadfast love. I mean, think about it. I'm just going to give you a few examples here. But what does He do for Noah? He gives him a rainbow in the sky and he gives him seasons like summer and winter and the day and the night. He gives them these things in creation. Why? To remind him of his commitment to his promises. We just received a norther blowing in to Fort Worth. The seasons are changing. God put the seasons in place as a reminder that he ain't going to flood the world again. It's not just the rainbow, it's the seasons. It's the day and the night. Read Genesis 8 and 9. So he's reminding us every day of his commitment to his promise. He gives Abraham the stars in the sky, right? You don't believe me, Abraham? Go outside, look at the stars. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Why did he put the stars in the sky? He put the stars in the sky to show Abraham how many sons and daughters from all nations he would bless through Abraham's seed. And that's a lot of people. So God created the universe for his people to enjoy his steadfast love. And, and doesn't Jesus make these kinds of connections too? Is he teaching? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. 
How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, this is creation imagery he's using. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You to walk outside and the first blade of grass you see when you step outside this morning is to be a reminder of God's steadfast love to you. That you are more valuable to him. First Timothy 4 2 teaches that God created marriage and food good and to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage and food exist for believers to give thanks to God. God created the world in light of the steadfast love he would show his people. And therefore, every moment is one of thanksgiving. Every morning you have a heartbeat. Every breath you take, every sun that rises, every spring that comes, every revolution of the earth around the sun, all of it is serving the delight of God's people in His steadfast love. One of the most basic things the Christian life in the Christian life is knowing your place before your Maker. He sustains every subatomic particle in your body by the word of His power. And we owe Him everything. And not to give Him thanks is to fall into the trap of suppressing the truth about God like we see in Romans 1 where they suppress the truth about God. Those who live in unrighteousness. He's worthy of thanksgiving, but they do not thank Him as God or glorify Him. Creation stands as a testimony to God's steadfast love toward His people that they might give Him thanks. Now, we still have to acknowledge that this world we live in, we know it, on this side of Adam is currently broken and it's riddled with all kinds of pain. Psalm 136 not, isn't, isn't trying to paper over that reality. We'll see in a, by the end that He does expose our desperate need for rescue, but But seeing that God is powerful, seeing that God is wise and ordering all things, while He's also good and worthy and and, and sovereign, seeing that God should give us great hope in the midst of suffering. In other words, if He is the one who loves us and holds us dear to Himself, if He is the one that is directing all things, then we have great hope. We can actually say with Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. And the context of the all things in Romans 8 is the created order. We give thanks because God is the creator. And His steadfast love moves Him to use His power and wisdom and ordering of all things for our ultimate good in Himself. The psalm then keeps going, but this time we see that God does to, what God does to reveal Himself in redemption. So another beautiful bead sliding onto our string of steadfast love is this. God is worthy of our thanksgiving because He is also Redeemer. He is also Redeemer. But, you know, with these two sections interwoven so tightly... It is a section on his creator and this section now on his redeemer. I can't help but consider that God created the world as one big stage 
for his love story to transpire. You know, why make a world with water in it? With bodies of water? To split the Red Sea. Take his people through it. So that he gets all glory and they bow in thanksgiving and worship. Why create a world with blood being the life in our veins? Because he's going to send his son to die and shed his blood. The world is one big stage for his love story to transpire. God created the world as a stage on which to demonstrate his love for his people by redeeming them so that they in turn would give him thanks for it. Redemption is not plan B. After he created the world and it just got out of control, he created the world to redeem it. It's one piece, part of one plan. One picture of God's redeeming work comes in verses 10 to 22. And I want to read through these verses, but I'm not going to say the refrain this time. And you'll get a good idea if you, as you hear the story told once again uh, what God's redeeming work includes. At least some big pieces of it. So verse 10, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel his servant. And, and really these are related to one another, these clauses, by uh, a way of purpose. Uh, so he struck down the firstborn in Egypt in order to bring Israel out from among them. He divided the Red Sea for two purposes, in order that Israel passed through the midst of it and so that Pharaoh and his armies might be killed. He struck down the great kings. Why? In order to give Israel the land as a heritage. It's all, this is God's purpose in doing these things. It wasn't just happenstance. And when we see this narrative play out, three big things that we see here come, uh, uh, when they, uh, three things stand out here. He delivers his people from slavery, he conquers their enemies, and he leads them into their inheritance. So he delivers his people from slavery. He brings them out with a strong hand. He conquers their enemies, like striking down the firstborn in Egypt, tossing Pharaoh and his armies into the Red Sea, killing the two kings, Sion and Og. And all along the way, it's to lead them into their inheritance, the, the promised land. So now we're actually seeing what it means for the good, worthy, sovereign, powerful wise creator to love his people. Don't lose sight of the first half of the psalm while you're seeing these things play out. We're watching the creator redeem his people. When this God commits himself to you, nothing can stand in the way of his love. 
I mean, if we think back to the Exodus, what is God doing except turning the created order against Pharaoh and Egypt while the created order works in favor of Israel? Think of the plagues, water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies. Those three things are really funny. That they would be a plague. Frogs in your kitchen and stuff. Water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, die, boils on the skin, hail from the sky, locusts, darkness. As creator, he controls all of those things. And he sends it against Egypt while keeping Israel safe. Exodus 11 says he did it so that they would know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I chose to love Israel. Not because Israel was deserving of it. They were just as guilty of idolatry as Egypt was. Just as worthy of punishment. Not because of anything they did. He just simply chose to love Israel. He makes the water stand up for His people. Only the Creator can do that. And then he causes it to come crashing down on Pharaoh and his armies. So you get this picture that goes something like this. You got shackles in Egypt? I'm going to crush them. You got armies standing between me and you? I'm going to wipe them out. Is there a desert between you and the inheritance? I'll be your sustenance along the way and I'll get you there. At every turn, God the Creator is loving His people so that they are redeemed and they enter into their inheritance. His love works to redeem the people that He's committed to. And isn't this what we see in our redemption too, as Christians? I mean, a virgin conceived and gave birth to a son. Only the Creator can call such things into being. God, the Creator, took on humanity. And what's He doing when He takes on humanity? He's coming to redeem His people. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Him telling the creation what to do, and the creation obeys Him. Who is this man? who speaks to the wind and the seas and they obey His voice. He makes the lame to get up and walk and the blind to see. He tells the ligaments and the bones in their body what to do. He proves that He is Lord of lords as He's casting out demons here and there and telling the disciples of His betrayal on the, and the cross even before those events transpire. Not a single authority would lay a hand on him apart from his sovereign permission. And this creator goes to the cross in steadfast love to redeem his people. 
God's steadfast love takes His only Son to the cross where He becomes our redemption. Just like God's love delivered Israel from slavery, so God's love delivers us from our slavery to sin. And He does this by crucifying Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb, the Bible tells us. His blood was spilt in our place that we might escape the shackles of sin's power and experience freedom in a new relationship with God. And just like God's love conquered Israel's enemies, so God's love conquers our enemies in Christ. Before He died, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He died on the cross to strip the weapon of guilt from the hands of our enemies. And then He rose from the grave three days later to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's Hebrews 2 and Colossians 2. And one day He will come again to punish all of our enemies once and for all. And just like God's love led Israel into their inheritance in the promised land, so God's love is leading us into our inheritance. Ephesians 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He lives in the saints now to sustain us until we get to our final home with Jesus and our experience of His steadfast love won't stop at that point. It will become more full and unlimited as we see Him face to face in the person of His Son, Jesus. And He shows us the wounds in His arms and His legs for eternity. And for an eternity, they will compel us to sing for His steadfast love endures forever. No more sin will be hindering us from seeing the glories of His love. Every day will be an increase in our song because every day will be a new revelation and a deeper understanding of His steadfast love toward us. That's what it means for God to be infinite and us to be finite. We will never get over growing in our and our amazement of His steadfast love for us. And all this means that we too, right now, can rehearse the refrain, for His steadfast love endures forever. At every turn, God's work in Christ demonstrates His love for us and His commitment to us. His love for us will never tire because He is not a God who grows tired in redeeming His people. He comes to their aid. And He still comes to their aid, which leads me to the last beautiful bead on the string of God's steadfast love. God is worthy of our thanksgiving because He still comes to the desperate. There's an important shift in verses 23 to 24. And it comes with the word, us. It is He who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. That's a remarkable statement because the people singing this psalm were generations removed from the events he just mentioned. How can they say God remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes when they're so far removed from these events? 
They can say it, first of all, because they see themselves as one with God's people throughout all the ages. But they can also say it because God never changes towards His people throughout all the ages. From age to age, His steadfast love towards His people remains the same. So they can say, He remembered us. They too have experienced His steadfast love. In fact, those previous events that they are reflecting on are actually pointing them forward to the things I just shared with you about Christ. That these, this exodus deliverance and this defeat of God's enemies and this inheritance of the promised land are, are all types pointing to greater realities in the future. Those greater realities being fulfilled in Christ and everything that He brings to us. And so from age to age, God is working the same for His people through these patterns of redemption. And we can say with them also that God remembered us in our low estate. And He rescued us from our foes. You can say that God remembered you in your low estate, can you not? We had a low estate. Ephesians 2 says that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's low. That's a low estate. You don't get any lower than that of being guilty forever under the wrath of God. And yet God remembered you. He came to rescue you from your foes, sin, death, and the devil So Ephesians 2 goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so we too, church, we sing the refrain as well, for His steadfast love endures forever. And we give Him thanks from day to day. He still comes to the desperate. Every day His mercies are new. Every day we are dependent on Him for life and breath and everything, as verse 25 says, it is He who gives food to all flesh. Every day He comes to our aid, protecting us from the evil one, driving away our sin, conforming us to Christ's image, nourishing our soul with His presence. He is our help, and He will lead us into our inheritance. But until that day comes, give yourself to the Word of God and see that there's never a moment in creation and redemption where He's not worthy of our thanksgiving and when He's not pursuing us with His steadfast love. 
At every turn in the journey of God's elect, God's steadfast love endures forever. It's unyielding, it's indestructible, it's boundless because it's all bound up with the one true God who reveals Himself in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know this God, I would plead with you to please set everything aside after the service Cancel your lunch plans. Do not hurry. There's no, mo- nothing more important that you need than Christ. And you will have a different Thanksgiving this year. Let us talk to you about Him after the service. There are members here who would love to do it. There are elders that will be here. And we will speak to you about everything that I've just shared with you. And how you can rejoice with us in these very same things. Why don't we pray together?